If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 619. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, for your audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com or click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Or you can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Of course, the best way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I do appreciate those things. And let's talk about the topic of the day. And this is carrying over from yesterday. I mentioned that uh, this tweet by Michael Beachloss has uh, generated a lot of interest among those on the left. He's one of them. And, of course, he's saying, look, would it have been better if we just let the South go? Would the United States have been in a better position today without the South? And so I talked about Kevin Levine's piece yesterday. And I said there was a couple other things to this. So today I'm going to look at another piece that discusses the exact same thing, and that's from uh, Lindsay Travinsky. Now, I've talked about Lindsay Travinsky before on this program. Um, she is a pretty popular historian. Um, she's written a book about Washington's cabinet, um, but she's not a very good historian. She's young. She's just not very good in terms of, well, I would say that she doesn't know a lot about the period she's writing about, and I, and I mean that sincerely. She's writing a book about the period that leads to the uh, to the 1798, essentially, I guess is what she's writing it on, a potential war with France. There was this uh, very dangerous situation in the 1790s. And she said she was doing some research and found a letter by a Federalist that advocates secession. It stopped her in her tracks because I guess she had never seen this before. She'd never heard anyone talk about this before. You see, she's very naive when it comes to this part of American history. And I think most American historians are. They don't realize that this union was tenuous. And it was tenuous even when the Constitution was going through ratification. It's why Randolph went to the Virginia Convention, ratifying convention, and said, look, I know I'm against, I said I was against the Constitution in Philadelphia, but I'm in favor of it now because if we don't ratify this thing, we're not going to have the United States any longer. In other words, disunion, secession, was perfectly legal, right? Everybody thought it could happen. And everyone knew it could happen, which is why this letter that she talks about, which I'll be talking about tomorrow in New England Federalists who favored secession, I'll be doing that tomorrow, and I'll go through this letter uh, in more detail, but I, I I don't want to do that. I want to get through her piece and talk about some of the ridiculous things she says in this, and then I'll talk about the letter tomorrow. But New England Federalists were the first to favor to favor secession, and they started favoring secession as early as 1794, right? So much earlier than what people realize. Within five years of the United States government being in operation, there were already people talking about secession. In the North, 
Now, Southerners weren't really talking about it at that point. They did start talking about it into the 19th century, long before we had slavery as an issue. But you see, this is where Chervinsky will say, no, 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 slavery was an issue. It was an issue all the way back then. Now, if you go back and read the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention, or you read some of the other people from New England, they talk about slavery. And they talk about slavery in pretty negative ways. The people in Massachusetts weren't necessarily in favor of being in a union with South Carolina slave owners. They didn't really like that a whole lot. They thought there should be something done about that. But they essentially were told and sold on this that, look, this is a state issue. We don't have to deal with slave owners. We're only talking about commerce and defense. The states have a lot of power here. They can do what they want. Of course, interestingly enough, uh, slavery in Massachusetts ended because of a court order, not because the Constitution of Massachusetts ended the institution. Uh, Though I have to say that the original Constitution that John Adams wrote, which was not adopted, was a pro-slavery Constitution. And it wasn't rejected because it was pro-slavery. It was rejected for other reasons. So it didn't mean that everyone in Massachusetts was against slavery. It didn't mean that everyone in Connecticut was against slavery. Certainly there were people there that were. But then you had those like Roger Sherman who just favored the Union. Look, the Union's more important than wrangling over this issue of slavery. South Carolina needs it. Georgia needs it. Virginia needs it, whatever it is. If they think they need the institution for their for their economic survival, then let them have it. We won't have it here. It's kind of the way that people like Roger Sherman thought of it. But you did have others that uh, were certainly against it. Oliver Wolcott, Oliver Ellsworth. I mean, there were a number of people in New England that talked about slavery. But no one was willing to go to war over the institution, regardless of what Lindsay Travinsky says. Let me read this piece and I'm going to talk about her, her craft, right? How good of a historian she is based on this letter. So she says, On April 6, 1797, Uriah Tracy wrote a letter to Alexander Hamilton, a letter I'll talk about tomorrow. Tracy was a senator from Connecticut and an ardent Federalist. And I'll talk about who Tracy was tomorrow, too. That's, a, that's downplaying a little bit who he was. A few weeks prior, news reports had arrived that the French directory had kicked Charles Coatsworth Pinckney the American minister out of the country. Outraged, many of the high Federalists, the more extreme faction of the party, began calling for war. Republicans, not the same party as today, instead the Jefferson Republicans or Democratic Republicans, urged peace and reconciliation. Well, this is true, right? The Federalists were pushing for war uh, in 1797. We had the very famous XYZ affair coming up. And so uh, this was an issue. In fact, the Congress authorized John Adams to call up 100,000 troops to put down this challenge to American sovereignty. And uh, Adams sent another delegation. Um, to his credit, Adams said, okay, look, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the army into effect. Of course, Hamilton was asked by George Washington to go out and command the army. Washington was going to be the figurehead. Hamilton was going to run the thing. And that's essentially what happened. There was a call for war, and of course this led to the quasi-war with France, where we had American uh, naval vessels attacking French naval vessels and vice versa to protect American merchant ships. So um, this is a pretty big deal in 1797 leading into 1798. For a couple of years, the American Navy was certainly doing very good work against the French Navy. But, and then she gets into this thing. I know she's not writing for a, an, an intellectual audience and this thing about you know the high Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, all that. I'll leave all that aside. 
She says, I will have a whole lot more on this subject in the next book, currently writing away, but Tracy's letter stopped me in my proverbial writing tracks. Maybe some of the words a bit... Maybe some of the words a bit antiquated. There's a typo there. But these same sentiments could have been written today. A few nuggets. So then she quotes the letter. Notice when we do the letter tomorrow what she leaves out. That's going to be very important when I talk about Travinsky as a historian and why you cannot trust her. So this is from the letter. Quote, The southern part of the Union is increasing by frequent importations of foreign scoundrels as well as by those of home manufacture. Their country is large and capable of such increase both in population and number of states that in both houses of Congress the northern states will soon be swallowed up and the name and real character of an American soon be known only as a thing of tradition. Add to this the explosion which must sooner or later derive itself from their slaves, comma, end quote. Now tomorrow I'll read the entire letter in this part of it. Because the comma end quote is important. She leaves out another part of this sentence that's very important to understand what Tracy was talking about here. Because, see, if you leave it there, it seems like the entire sentence is simply about slavery. And that's what she says. She follows it up with this. This section is valuable for a number of reasons. First, Tracy complains that immigrants are being imported for political purposes. That old trick. In some ways, Tracy's concerns were accurate, sort of. Most immigrants, whether they be French or Irish, did vote for Republicans in overwhelming numbers. But Republicans weren't importing them for votes. Now, I don't think that when you read the letter, let's just go back. The southern part of the, United, of the Union is increasing by frequent importations of foreign scoundrels, as well as those of home manufacture. Now, it's hard to discern what Tracy means from that. Is he talking about foreign scoundrels as the Irish? Or um, is he talking about the French? Or is he talking about slaves? What's he talking about here? He doesn't say because then he says as well as those of home manufacture. Is that talking about slaves? Is he saying that these foreign scoundrels, I mean, how do we know? So I guess you could assume foreign scoundrels, he is talking about foreigners. And then home manufacture, would that be slaves or is that just native-born people? Because he says their country is large and capable of such increase both in population and number of states. Now, yes, Republicans, she is right. Republicans were not importing people just for voting purposes. But you got to remember... Um, that it's in this time period, 1798. What happens in Congress? Well, you get the Alien and Sedition Laws. The Alien Laws were designed to keep foreigners out of the United States. It was as simple as that. And, of course, Jefferson responds to this with the Kentucky Resolutions, and he's very critical of the Federalists for trying to keep people out of the United States. So uh, Tracy is, I mean, I think that he is concerned about foreigners, Irish, French, whoever else, Spanish, whatever else these people would be, because foreigners tended to vote for the Jeffersonian faction in, uh, in Congress and elsewhere. He's also concerned about the natural increase of the Southern population. He doesn't necessarily say slaves here. He could be talking about free white people, home manufacture. Their population's increasing. It's increasing substantially. Maybe ours isn't increasing as much, but theirs is. 
Next, this is where Travinsky continues. Next, Tracy indicates that he is aware of the population imbalance facing the nation, largely driven by a growing enslaved population. But that's not what he says. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that the imbalance is driven by a growing enslaved population. All he says is that there's people, the population is growing by home manufacture. So what's he talking about there? I mean, what is it? Because he mentions slaves later on, but he doesn't say slaves here. So I think Travinsky is actually reading into this more than what should be discerned or, or you know, uh, gathered from this particular letter. Then she says, an enslaved population that provided additional representation for the South while keeping the same people in bondage. Now, this was brought up in the Philadelphia Convention, of course. Northerners didn't want to count slaves as any people towards, pop, towards representation. Southerners wanted to count them as one. The question I would ask Stravinsky when you say this, well, I mean, are not all people in the North counted, even though they can't vote? Even though they can't participate in government, women are counted. Um, so in um, this was Hugh Williamson said in the Philadelphia Convention, look, slaves are rational people. We should count them. We should count them towards representation. We know in North Carolina, for example, free blacks could vote up until the early, well, about the early 19th centuries. Debatable when this changes, but um, we know they could vote. Whether they did vote or not is another question, but we know it could happen. We know that blacks couldn't vote in the North. I mean, look, we know that this is being hypocritical in some ways. But he doesn't say that this is coming from slavery. He just says it's a home manufacturer. I mean, is that what does that mean? She says, 18th century Americans knew how divisive slavery could be, which inherently means that not everyone was on board with slavery, which is important to keep in mind when someone says, let's judge people based on their standards, not ours. Tracy's letter also reveals he had a sense of, of the trouble slavery might cause for the Union down the road. Well, he says this one word about slaves. Is this, but he says, add to this, the explosion which must sooner or later derive itself from their slaves. Does that mean the explosion between the North and South? Or does it mean there's going to be a slave insurrection? He doesn't really say here because when he when she drops that next quote, essentially, Tracy starts talking about foreigners again. Right? He starts talking about foreigners. So what's happening here? Is it because of slavery that there will be a, a disunion sentiment, or is it because of slavery that there would be some type of slave insurrection in the South? What's going on here? He doesn't really say. She reads into it and says, well, this, I mean, he knew that slavery is going to lead to a breakup of the Union, but that's not what he's really saying. So, again, you have to be very careful with people that read into things that really aren't there. And this is exactly what Travinsky is doing. She says 18th century Americans knew how divisive slavery could be, which inherently means that not everyone's on board with slavery. Where does he say slavery is divisive? I mean, you could read into this and say, well, he's saying that there would be an explosion between North and South because of their slaves. Or you could say it would be a slave insurrection. Who knows? We know in 1798, we had already seen the French Revolution, and we had already seen what had happened in Haiti there was already some pretty nasty stuff going on in Haiti. So, um, I mean, this is 
this is, uh, you know, something that we have to understand here. Uh, that actually began as early as 1791. You started seeing an explosion in Haiti because of slavery. So is that what he's talking about? I mean, 1793 to 1798, you have a pretty nasty situation in Haiti. So, uh, I mean, this is, this is where I, I, you have to be very careful. I don't think he's talking about a division between the North and the South because of slavery. I think he's talking about a nasty slave insurrection that could, took play, that could take place. Remember, he says here, the name and real character of an American soon be known as only as a thing of tradition. So what is a real American? Well, he's saying it's a Northerner. Not a Southerner. It's a Northerner. So this is getting to where, what, what she misses in all of this, what she misses in all this, is that Tracy was concerned primarily about losing power. You see, this is what it was all about all the time. So, she continues. With all these concerns, immigration, slavery, and undue French influence among certain parties, Tracy writes, quote, all these and many more painful facts induce me to believe a separation absolutely necessary to preserve an independence in a part which could not be done united. We are really so different in manners and opinion and in activities and exertion that the northern states have been a number of years carrying the southern on their backs. In this view of the subject, I cannot be brought to regret a separation. So then she says, if you find 18th century writing style confusing, Tracy's essentially saying that the north and south are so different that they should be separate nations. Well, thank you for interpreting that, Travinsky, because you don't do a very good job interpreting anything else. I mean, you read too much into things that aren't there. So you're not really good at interpreting it either. It must, you must find it confusing because uh, you're finding stuff that's not there. But that's exactly what he is saying there, that it would be better for the North and South to be separate. He's saying the North has been carrying the South. They've been carrying on their backs. In fact, he makes a different reference in the letter, but they've been carrying on their backs. And, uh, you know, in order for the North to remain independent, we just got to separate. We're difference in manners and opinion and activity and exertion. We're different in all these things. Now, people recognize this in 1787. They, <laughs> Governor Morris, look, if we're really so different, let's separate now. Of course, that didn't happen. She says, this section really stood out because just a few days prior, I had seen this tweet from Michael Beachloss. Some people on Twitter are now saying that in light of what we now know, Lincoln should have simply allowed the South as a seat in 1861. My friend Kevin Levin, she says, wrote a piece about why this tweet is problematic for the Civil War. Well, I ripped that, tweet, that post apart yesterday because it's ridiculous. But while this sentiment might be prevalent today, and she quotes a, a tweet from Marjorie Taylor Greene, should America have a national divorce, where 50.8% uh, said yes, Tracy's letter shows it's nothing new. Well, I agree with her there. While the concept of splitting the states in half might have worked in 1787, although not really because the same concerns that applied in 1860 per Kevin's post above also applied in the 1790s, no. I mean, look, a, a separate United States could have existed anytime. It could exist today. There doesn't need to be one nation indivisible. It never has been that. It's what... <laughs> That's what John Taylor said. That's like a utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. The idea is even more insane today. It's insane, she says. Insane to think about political separation. Insane. 
From a practical perspective, how do you cut out cities like Dallas, Austin, Chicago, Denver, or Cleveland from the more conservative areas surrounding them? I, well, you just say the states are separate countries, and then you have factions within the states, too. How do you cut these out? You wouldn't have to. You have Texas, and you have liberal Texians and conservative Texians, and the liberal Texians would just not be able to control the government. And the conservative Texians would, just like in California. Notice how she doesn't, uh, you know, she mentions California, but so you have California, and you have liberal California, and Conservative California says they have to deal with it, or they can move. Then she says, how do you cut out conservative areas like Orange County or the southwestern portion of Virginia from the world liberal states? You don't. Or you have those states divide up more. You don't cut them out. Not to mention, if you're going to put the blue states into one nation, how do you connect California with New York? You don't. California and New York could easily be independent countries. They have the economy. They have the population. They have resources. It, it would easily work. Right? She's thinking in terms of Lincolnian nationalism. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's crippling. It really is when you think in these terms. She says, we should also reject these notions from an ideological position. More moderate politicians like George Washington and John Adams knew that the nation was better as one unit than 13 countries or even a, or even a few regional blocks. In previous posts, I've written about Washington's farewell address and this argument was one of the main themes. He reminded readers and future generations that the states needed each other to flourish economically. The South needed the merchant marine in the North to sell its goods, and the North needed the South's goods to sell on its ships. The states needed each other for national defense alone or in groups they would be prey to whims of European empires. Now, all this is true, and I talked about George Washington, the nationalist, last week. All that is true, but the real issue, though, as Tracy points out, is what happens if one section becomes aggressive and controls the entire government and we don't really have a true union anymore? What happens if we have a, a series of states that control the government and they pass massive amounts of unconstitutional legislation? What happens there? It's not something that Travinsky is even taking into account. So would it be better to live under unconstitutional government than not? I mean, this is the big question. Or if you want your particular position on the environment or gun rights, whatever it is, to be your thing, well, would it not be easier to do that in a more localized setting than it would be in a quote-unquote national setting? She says, but more importantly, Washington argued Mar Americans had more in common than not. Well, not today. I think that America has never been more divided today than at any time in its history. Even in 1860, there was still a lot of commonality between Americans, North and South, uh, when, over things like religion. I mean, look, most Americans in 1860 were practicing Christians. So you had that, that unity that you wouldn't have had, you don't have today, when half the population doesn't even go to church or believe in any religion. There's no commonality there. I mean, you have... Government becoming a religion for many people, and there's nothing there to glue the union together, except maybe commerce or football or something like that. She says, sure, they might disagree on which nation should be the closest ally, and they might bicker over politics, but there was a national identity which Americans should rally, at least a tiny baby one in 1796. At least a tiny baby one. You can't, I mean, this writing is just juvenile. But anyways, um, 
a national identity. Certainly there are Americans who talked and spoke in national terms. They did. But for most Americans, you were... And, and look at what Tracy's saying. He's essentially calling the South their country, right? Many Americans viewed states or sections as their country, not just the United States. And I think that's important to get out of this. And I'll, again, I'll cover Tracy's letter tomorrow because it's pretty good. There's a lot of good stuff in it. She says, to be sure, in 2022, we have lots of divisions. I've lived all over the nation, and sometimes it feels that there are tons of different countries. I get it. But there is an American identity, an American history, and an American ideal. We rarely meet that ideal, and the history is often messy. We should keep striving for it anyway. The phrase, to form a more perfect union, is apt. It's never been and never will be perfect, but we can keep trying. A union of what, though? A union of states, of course. And if, again... Some of the states are controlling the government and they're passing massive amounts of unconstitutional legislation and it's ruining the United States. Your first and most paramount allegiance is to the Constitution and ensuring that the government uphold its end of the compact. And when it doesn't, the states have a right to say enough. This is how it was sold to the people of the states during ratification. She says, I think about that unity a lot in moments like the one we're living through. We are witnessing a deadly fight of democracy versus autocracy in Ukraine. And the bravery and dedication of the Ukrainian people is inspiring. I really believe they aren't just fighting for their nation. They're fighting for democracy and self-government everywhere. Really? This is what she believes? I mean, that's, yeah, that's what they're doing. You can almost hear the breathless. I feel like this is what they're doing. Yet a lot of Americans and a lot of public officials seem more consumed by the opportunity to score a political point off the crisis. Looking at you, Josh Hawley, and see, see Heather Cock Richardson's letters from an American. No, let's not see that. Because I, because um, it's awful. Now, uh, now more than ever, it seems like a good opportunity to rally around the flag rather than to try it, tear it down. So the fact is that she's discovered, made this amazing discovery that New Englanders wanted to secede. And they wanted to do it several times. It wasn't just 1797. They were talking about it before that. They were talking about it after that. New Englanders wanted out. Southerners are going to dust off nullification in 1798, which, of course, wasn't the first time this was used. It was also used in the lead-up to the American War for Independence. But regardless... Uh, the fact that she is surprised by this, shocked, and oh, this is just a stupid idea. Stupid in the 1790s, stupid now. Maybe it's maybe Michael Bischloss is onto something here. He's onto something here. Because if the South had been let go in 1861, you've got seven states, and who knows what would have happened. I, I think that would have been very hard for them to continue on their own, but you never know. Um, I think eventually they would have come back in the Union, but you would have solved some issues, right? And, now, I know all the lefties, but slavery still would exist. Slavery would exist. Well, Lincoln was willing to let it exist till 1890. Had he lived, had he not been shot in 1865, slavery might have existed for another 25 years. Who knows? Lincoln was going to be working on that. This is why, again, the assassination of Lincoln, even though Lincoln's a, a, just as empty as Kamala Harris, Lincoln at least was... Uh, looking long-term in what could be the best interests of the United States, not just a group or a faction in that, but how could this be settled long-term? And with his assassination, um, 
the situation went off the rails pretty quickly and got spiraled out of control. I mean, Reconstruction got worse. Um, No guarantee Lincoln could have been, could have had a, a different kind of Reconstruction, but certainly Andrew Johnson didn't have the political capital that Abraham Lincoln had. Okay. So this piece is just as bad as, as Levine's piece, but I do want to focus on that letter tomorrow because that letter is key to understanding what she's saying here, and um, she gets it wrong. She leaves out so much that changes the entire context of the letter. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.